0: Well, I was thinking about uh, the Old Testament this week, and I was thinking, you know, you ever have this thought, if only we could have been there, when? You, you, ever, you ever be like, when, every time I study the Bible, I'm like, oh, if I could have been a fly on the wall and just watched when this took place, or maybe not a fly, you know, maybe actual person, <laughs> but to be there, right, when? When God spared Isaac and provided a ram, for example, that moment, knowing what we know now, think of how significant that was. The knife was in the air. Abraham was ready and trusting the Lord, even if he dropped that knife and killed his son of the promise that the Lord could raise him. And in faith, he obeyed. And right at the last minute, his hand was stilled and the ram was provided. Oh, to be there for that. Or when Moses was used by God to part the Red Sea and dry land appeared, how cool would it have been to be hiking with the Israelites through and just put your hand in. Don't you want to do that? Just reach in, grab a fish, right? <laughs> We're good, you know? Just. And then the waters came back over Pharaoh and drowned him and his army. The greatest military on earth perished under the wrath of God and the waves of the Red Sea. Or when God destroyed the walls of Jericho, we got to go and and see those walls. I have a tiny little piece uh, in my office of the walls of Jericho that came down at the hand of God as they marched in obedience and in faith, and God brought destruction to the city. Or when David killed Goliath, right? The boy, the shepherd, who no one thought had anything to bring to the table, and here he is, demonstrating his faith in the Lord. Oh, what a, what a foretaste of Christ, our Savior, the humble servant who took down the giant that we were afraid of and trembling before. When Solomon finished the temple, wouldn't you have loved to be there that day when the trumpets blew and for the first time you could go now and worship in the finished temple, built as God has instructed, the beauty and glory. Or when Elijah was taken up into heaven. Think of this. Here's Elisha standing there and it was said if, if you can see this take place then the mantle of prophetic power and, 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 and gifting is, is passed on and all of a sudden his eyes are given to see the fiery chariot pull up and in goes Elijah and up in the whirlwind. I, I, just w- I wish we could have been there for that. It's easy for us to look back and say, you know what, those were the glory days. Those were the glory days. When when stuff happened like that, oh, how easy it would have been to believe. We've been studying through the Gospel of John and the reality is we know that many people witnessed these things. They witnessed even Jesus teaching and healing and doing wonders and they didn't believe. But oh, the glory days. One of the things that we are called to by these verses is, ironically, to check our privilege. I love taking woke things and turning them into biblical things. (laughs) This is not a woke sermon. Let me be clear on the outset. Oh, the YouTube views are gonna drop at this point. (laughs) Check your privilege. I'm not talking about that craziness, okay? Are we privileged believers today? To be here in this time and this place? The answer is absolutely we are. We live in the glory days that were anticipated of old. And so Peter wants us to see how unbelievably privileged we are to be here with what we have in view and all the resources and the future that's coming our way. So let's get into these verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10-13. And uh, we'll just go verse by verse here. Prophetic examination is where we're going to start. Prophetic examination. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, that is the salvation that you have experienced, my friends, the gospel, the salvation that's been the focus of all the verses up until now, the salvation that God accomplished, that God brought to you in power, all of grace. Peter writes, "The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings and uh, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories." So th- this is a window into a prophetic experience that otherwise we may not know was taking place. As the prophets wrote, the Word of God. The Holy Spirit here is in view. This is also the Spirit of Christ, right? So there's a few different places in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit by this title. Um, he comes. As Jesus goes, the Spirit of Christ comes, and Pentecost takes place, and power is given. Okay, so now the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was uh, to bring the Word of God to the prophets in all kinds of different ways. Um, here are some verses about how they prophesied, how the Word of God was brought to us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Think of this. What would would this be like? You are writing words in your own mind, your own spirit, your own expression of personality, and and as these words are written, you know that you are writing the Word of God. And and as you're writing these words, you don't understand them. They're pointing to a reality beyond your time. They're, they're, They're anticipating someone and something that you don't understand. So the prophets are writing. They're writing these words and then they are studying what they've written. They're studying the times in which they live. They want to understand what is taking place here. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture. So this is how your Bible has come to you, friends. It is the Word of God written and penned through human authors, but God's Word, one book, all the different authors together One storyline, the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of God. Old Testament anticipation. This moves then from Moses all the way to John the Baptist. You remember even in the New Testament when John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus and he said, "Say say to him, are you the one or should we look for another? This is the same work of the prophets over all of these years. Now, John should have known better. He was just having a bit of a crisis of faith at that point because he was imprisoned and things weren't looking good. Moses, the first five books of your Bible were written by Moses as given by the Lord, some directly and other through the Spirit uh, given. So even as Moses is writing the history of humanity, the the history of creation, he's seeing pointers and things take place in all of the stories that unfolded. Searching and inquiring, these are the questions that Peter says were on their minds. Who are we writing about? Who is the Messiah? It's very clear. There is a Messiah. There is one who is going to come. Who is he? Where is he? Right? And and when will this come to pass? This is the anticipation. Every child that was born in a Jewish family, every male child that was born, the question was, Is this the one? Could this be the Messiah? Searching and inquiring. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, that is the Holy Spirit, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So they knew, number one, that the Messiah would suffer. He would suffer. And we're going to see here in these specific prophecies that not just suffer, but die be cut off from the land of the living, and then be glorified. After that, be glorified. So what does that mean? How does that look? How's this going to come to pass? Look at some of these prophetic gifts that the Lord gave and that stirred this inquiry. There are so many. I I deleted a number of these even after I laid out my PowerPoint because there's hundreds of them in the Bible. Going all the way back to the first mention of, uh, of, of the Messiah and the first prophecy really in the Bible about the Messiah, this is the curse being given by God to the snake, the serpent, Lucifer. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, he, that's a capital, right? He shall bruise your head. He is the The serpent crusher, and you shall bruise his heel. This is anticipating the triumph of Christ over the serpent of old. In the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, we see this again I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, your lineage, coming from your line, All the families of earth shall be blessed. That is one of the first points of incredibly wonderful news to Gentiles as well. This is where the the Jews have their origin. Abraham, I will make you a great nation. But it's not just about you. It is about all the families of the earth. They will be blessed. How? Who? That's the question. We go on. Micah 5.2, but you. These are Christmas verses, aren't they? This is where I'm going to be this Christmas. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler or king over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Well, how ancient? How far back? Who is this ruler, this king? Searching, inquiring. Then Isaiah, oh, how rich Isaiah is with prophetic. Messianic anticipation. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Anticipation. It's coming. King David wrote messianic anticipation as he penned Psalm 22. I just pulled a few verses here together, but the entire movement is pointing to the Messiah and his sufferings my God my God why have you forsaken me Jesus quoted that verbatim all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the Lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him right Jesus if you are God then come down off of that cross For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands. Think of the anticipation. David doesn't understand this as he writes this. This is is not uh, from his own experience. He's writing a messianic fulfillment that would come. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. Now, that's significant. The Passover sacrifice was not to have any broken bones. It was to bleed out and die, but not a bone should be broken, just like we find in the Gospel of John when Jesus was killed. They came in a hurry to break the knees of the others who were crucified, but Jesus was already dead. And so instead of breaking His knees to speed up His death, what did they do? They pierced His side. Not a bone was broken of our Saviour. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Think of the details that David speaks here and writes all those years before Jesus was on the scene. Who is it? When will this happen? The most incredible is Isaiah 53. I just want to give you these verses and just consider all of the detail, all of the specific Prophetic detail that Jesus fulfilled. He was despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah continues to write. Now think, as he's writing this, he doesn't know. You can, you can feel this in Isaiah. His longing is, who is this? When will we meet him? He goes on. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. That is, he is killed. He is murdered. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. The detail here. All of this fulfilled. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. mouth. Falsely accused he was. Righteous through and through. Yet it was the will of the Lord, that is, the Almighty God, the Father. It was the Father's will to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. He, He has put Him to grief. And when His soul makes offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring, that is, those who live because of His sacrifice, and death. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied the subsequent glories. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He became sin who knew no sin. That we, my friends, the sinners, might become the righteousness of God in him. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's praying for us today. The detail here is incredible. Isaiah writes this of the Messiah in such clarity and detail and every single thing he wrote was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Daniel writes this in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came Uh, to the ancient of days and was presented before him, that is the Father, and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, note this, do you hear Revelation 5 ringing out, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Death cannot take away This kingdom. He is established in his subsequent glory. So, suffering, death, anguish, wrath, being crushed under the weight of God's wrath, dying as the Lamb to atone for the sin of many and subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving. Not themselves, but you. These prophets who inquired, who wondered, who is this? When will this take place? They were understanding as they inquired, the Lord gave them this window. You guys are writing here and now for a generation to come. Your words will be fulfilled in a day yet to come. Our day. It's it's the glory days. You see what, they did, what Peter's doing? They were waiting. We are knowing answers to questions that they longed to know. They were serving us, my friends. The prophets were serving us as they wrote the things that have now been announced or proclaimed to you, believers. So great a salvation we have. Th- these are the glory days. We are privileged beyond imagination to live in the time in which we find ourselves today. Can it be difficult? Yes. Will there be trials and persecution and suffering and and heartache? Absolutely, yes. Peter knew that. But he is pointing the believers to the reality of, of this overwhelming reality that they have. This joy is theirs. Let's go on. 12b, gospel proclamation. How did this... Meet with the believers then. How does it meet us today? It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have been now, now been announced to you through those who preached the good news, that is the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Think of this. The same Spirit that was stirring and pinning the Word of God through the prophets is now communicating Through vessels of clay, like me. Regular people preaching the good news, proclaiming in the power of the Spirit and bringing transforming life power through the Gospel. All of this is Jesus Christ preached. The good news, the Gospel. Same Holy Spirit is at work. He's penning and writing, only now He's writing on hearts. He is writing Life and joy and freedom and the words of Christ to stir in us obedience, a love for Him, eyes to see Him, hearts to feel. Full gospel proclamation in spirit power. This is the move from shadow to reality. This is the difference between living in the Old Testament and living in the New. They had shadows. We have Christ. We, we see Him. It's 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 not in question. He is the one they spoke about. Jesus fulfilled every prophecy spoken about the Messiah. There are different estimates to the numbers of those, but it's at least over 300. Some have counted up over 500. That's incredible. The, the, The mathematic possibility of that taking place is insane. It is so minuscule that one person could fulfill all of the hundreds of prophecies spoken, that mathematicians use this as an evangelistic witness. There's no way anyone could do this. You, this is the, you can't just go down and say, okay, let's see, well, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, because you know what? You're not the only one who has the hand in it. How is it that the Roman soldiers with their, their seared conscience as a man is suffering and dying are casting lots for his garments. You can't make that happen. That is God's providence at work, bringing to pass what he declared of old exactly as he said it would take place. We're gonna see this as we look at the Christmas story once again, the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem required massive things taking place, a movement 90 miles to the south When Mary was great with child, the timing of it, every detail counts, and it all confirms Jesus is the Messiah, the anticipated one. So if you're here and you don't know what the good news is, let me point you with a few things here today that just confirm Jesus is your only hope. He was born of a virgin. No one else can say that. You can't plan that, right? Mary was given favor by God. And he overshadowed her, and in her womb came a man-child. She was impregnated by God himself, and she gave birth to Jesus. He was born without the, the bloodline of sin that would track through the man. He was born righteous, without sin, and he lived that way all the way to his death. He never sinned. He submitted perfectly to the Father. He obeyed His parents. He he never lied or cheated or was upset in an evil way. He was always right and righteous in everything He did. He showed supernatural signs that pointed to His divinity. We're right in the middle of that in John, aren't we? We're seeing week after week after week how confirming it is. He is the Son of God, eternal. The eternal Son of God. He taught with authority. He taught like no one else had ever taught. He taught with clarity. He brought new teaching. He he completely tore apart the wimpy false teaching of the day and got right to the heart of the matter. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. And that's exactly what he did. And that's what he does. He laid his life down. No one takes my life from me, he said very clearly. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I can take it back up again. And that is exactly what he did. He laid his life down willingly to pay for the sin of everyone who would trust in him and, and believe in him by faith. If, if you're here and you have yet to do that, I've got good news for you. There is a way for you to escape the wrath of God and the eternal fires of hell that you deserve because of your sin. The only way is Jesus. You can't be good enough You can't dig yourself out of a hole like that. There is no amount of good works that will qualify for you to stand before a holy, holy, holy God. But God has loved us in that he doesn't expect us to try to clean ourselves up and be something that we could never be. He said, I will send one, my son, who will live the life you've never lived who will die the death you deserve to die and then rise in power so that you might be forgiven. He can pay for all of your sins. Every single one. His victorious resurrection is proof, it's evidence that it was satisfactory by the Father. The Father accepted His atoning sacrifice and sin was addressed in full. That is, all of the sins of all who look to Him by faith and his glorious ascension. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father today, and he is coming again. He's coming again. That's good news. That's good news. That, that's what faithful churches the world over today have been preaching. It is the only hope of sinners. And today, by faith, you can say, Jesus, save me. Listen to how simple this is, Jesus' own words. This is the will of my Father, that everyone... Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Is that you today? Are you here today and you have looked upon the Son and said, listen, I'm trusting in you. I can't trust in me. I've proven that doesn't work. I'm trusting in you and you alone. Save me from my sins. Bring me to life. Give forgiveness by faith, Lord, I... I bow before you. I trust you. The confidence is this. Not only will he save you today, but he will keep you all through eternity. That life that he gives you today by faith, completely of his grace, will never end. You are his forever. I will raise him up on the last day. Most of the faces I see in here, they know that life today. You woke up with that, with a smile on your face, knowing that come what may, it's going to be okay. Even if this is the last day, even if the most horrific tragedy occurs today, if your life falls completely apart, you have reason to rejoice because you're His no matter what. We long for everyone in this world to know that kind of joy. Now, angelic yearning This is such a glimpse. What an amazing glimpse Peter gives us into a world that is just beyond our view. Angelic yearning. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, believers, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. That would include the apostles. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he says this. This is no throwaway tag on. This is significant. Things into which angels long to look. Now, what does that mean? That that angels are not able to see us right here and now? No, they are. They're they're in this room. We can't see them, but they see us. They do the bidding of God. Let's be clear angels are real, they are creations of God. They are not human beings, they are not former human beings. Angels are a distinct creation of God. They have names. They have assignments. They do His bidding. He doesn't need them to accomplish His his purpose, but He employs them in the work of the kingdom. There was a third of the angels that chose in a moment of choice that God gave. One moment. He gave them one moment of choice where He said, your loyalty can be to Lucifer or to the God of all creation. A third of the angels chose rebellion and were swept from heaven with Lucifer. Those angels are now called demons. They are also real. They are real. They are active in this world. They report to Lucifer, who is real, and he hates everything you stand for, Christian. They work against the kingdom. But they have only the power that God allows them to have and only as long as he allows them to have it for his purpose and his wisdom. Angels, those faithful angels, by the way, there is no redemption for angels. There's no salvation for angels. Jesus didn't die to ransom and redeem angels from their hellish decision they've made. There is only salvation for those who bear the image of God. That is human beings. And only salvation among those for those whom God has chosen to set that salvation upon from eternity past. Angels long to look into this. They long to understand this. What what is it like to be forgiven? What's it like to be carrying the image of God and dragging it through the mud and sin? Hating Him. Railing against Him. Living as if He didn't exist. And then in a moment, saved by grace, through faith, to be His, to be brought into His family, to know eternal life, to be given an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, and kept. Hmm. There's no mercy and forgiveness for angels. There's no redemption or reconciliation for angels. There's no victory over sin and death for angels. There's no renewing of the mind for angels. There's no eternal inheritance for angels. They yearn to to understand this more, to delight in it more. It's not like they're jealous and they're sinning. No, the angels don't sin. They're spirit beings who obey God in perfection. But their delight and their yearning is to look in and say, "What, what must that be like? Wow, that's incredible. Jesus himself said, That there is joy that spreads through the heavens when even one sinner is saved. Who's celebrating? The angels celebrate for sure. They rejoice at the salvation of God. Who do they glorify? They glorify the God who saves. Angels are obsessed with this salvation. It's as if Peter is saying, listen, if angels are obsessed with it, you should be as well. This should be the focal point of your life. How could you not be blown away every day you wake up at the reality that you are His, you are saved, and you are moving toward Him invincibly to meet with reward. So, verse 13 moves us into the final verse for us today. Our great privilege and resolve. Our great privilege and resolve. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse marks a huge transition in, in the letter that Peter writes. This is the first moment that he gives a command. Everything else up until this point has been description of God's accomplishment and the reality that we know because of what he's done now, with all of that in view, he says this, set your hope, Christian. Set it. Fix it. Be obsessed with the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In, in uh, Bible study, we call this the move between indicatives and imperatives. An indicative is what is true, something that God has done. This is a reality. In a lot of Paul's writings, you see this. The first three chapters of Ephesians, for example, are indicatives, filled with what God has done. And then the application in the second half, four through six, imperatives. With this in view, now live it out. Okay, so think... um, Romans 12 here. Think think Hebrews 12. This is the call then to transformation, the call to live it out. The first command that Peter gives us is to set our hope, to place our faith in future grace. Now, I love John Piper's book, Faith in Future Grace. It takes, and with a massive scholarly uh, brilliance, he builds this out. What does it look like to live as a believer with faith In future grace, it is life giving and it is a command here. We we are called to set our hope on the grace that is to come. That's today. When you go home today, what should be on your mind? When you wake up every day this week, what is the call? The obedience to this command is I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait. Jesus, come again. Look at what's coming our way. Friends, the glory days are coming. like we can't even imagine. There's two things that he builds us out with. Set your hope fully on future grace. And as you do so, you have to be preparing your mind for action. So you're, we're, we're, we're preparing our minds for action as we set our hope. What does that mean? Well, in a sense, it, it means uh, to, to, to gird up the loins of your mind. And uh, I was joking with Jenny all week long about this because that's such old you know writing but that's the literal translation here of this gird up the loins of your mind this is language so in this day they would uh, the men the jewish men would wear these robes and if they needed to run if they needed to to fight they would reach down through their between their legs and tuck their robe into their belt right so now all of a sudden they got some cool shorts right <laughs> And you can move. You can't run very good in a robe like that, but all of a sudden you got your shorts on. You can make some ground up. You can fight. You do what you need to do. Maybe in our day it would be more like this. Roll up your sleeves. Let's go. Come on. Let's get get going. we got work to do. It's time to roll up your sleeves, Christian. With all that has been spoken, let's get to work. Let's get to work. We're not Waiting around. We're not hitting snooze. We're not floating through the day with apathy and and without purpose. Friends, we got a future. It's coming. Roll up your sleeves and get to work. Determination and resolve. The second one is this. To be sober-minded. Sober-minded. Self-controlled, some of your translations say. To be self-controlled. I like sober-minded. I feel like it's a better uh, handling of that. It it gives us a a, a spiritual dimension here. There's a spiritual dimension to our readiness as we set or fix our hope. Reject any intoxicating influence that would distract or weaken your focused hope. Okay? So when he says be sober-minded, he's not simply talking about, uh, you know, don't get drunk, which the Bible makes that point over and over and over. We should not be under the influence in that sense that is, is blurring the mind, that is taking capacity away, that is making us vulnerable to sin and Satan. We shouldn't be the kind of people who choose that path. But instead, what path should we choose? Focus. Attentive. Dialed in. Ready. And at war. At war. We reject any inclination to a spiritual intoxication that would, that would cause us to miss what God has for us on any given day. What does this look like? It means we, we, we fight against sin. We fight against the propensity to sin that was natural once for us, but now we are to reject. We fight against situations that would stir us to sin. We make decisions that would purposefully move us toward holiness and away from sin. This is the purposefulness that we are called to, a resolve, a focus. Now we're going to build this out as we move into these verses that come down below here because it's just like command, 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 command. With all that's in view, guess what? Holiness is coming next. This is the setup. This is, this is the tea, right? He's getting ready to just knock this out of the park. You have all of this hope, so set your mind and run this race and lay aside every sin that entangles. Focus on Christ and run with endurance the race marked out for you. Our response this morning, friends, so much here we can put to work. One of the things I just have to say is we are privileged beyond measure. And that's not a bad thing. That is a glorious thing. That's a stunning thing. That's a humbling reminder. We have experienced salvation, of the salvation of God. It's all grace. We don't deserve this. He has lavished His love upon us. We are privileged beyond measure. We live in the glory days and we are coming into a glory that will outweigh any suffering that we might experience in this short life. So fix your hope, fix your hope. Focus on what is awaiting you, believer. Don't lock in on the trials, oh, how easy it is to do when things don't go the way we want, right? When, when, when frustrations happen, even this past week with the election, so I just keep checking that thing and it's not updating. I don't know what takes so long to count votes, honestly, but eventually they're gonna come in and, and oh, we can get discouraged. When, when, when life turns a, a, an angle that we don't see coming, who's in control? Who's sovereign? What is true about the days ahead? They are better than the days right now. Even though we are blessed beyond measure, the prophets would have loved to live in our day. We're going to share together with them forever in perfect glory through all eternity. Gratitude and obedience, they go hand in hand. Hope and holiness. The one calls us to the other. This is why Peter laid out this book the way he did. You start with what is true of you and what is coming your way, and then you call forth the reality of joy-hearted obedience, submission, tenacious warfare on sin and Satan. So believers, may this be our posture as we head into a week and prepare for Thanksgiving after that, right? Gratitude. Gratitude is one of the markers of Christian maturity. The more grateful you are as a Christian, you can know this, friend, the more you have grown in Christ. It is one of the most clear litmus tests of healthy Christian living When you find your heart overflowing with gratitude. If the opposite, then would also be true. If you are grumbling and bitter and complaining and frustrated, constantly joyless, then you need to grow and let this sermon point the way. Let Peter point to you, the future that awaits We'll focus then on all that builds out in obedience because you want want satisfaction, you want joy in this short little life? Obedience is the path. That is the best way. God is wise and He calls us to the greatest way to live. The world hates it, rejects it, wants to change the family, wants to call evil good and good evil, and we say, thus saith the Lord. And we walk in His way. Let's pray. Oh God, we give thanks and praise to you for the great privilege that you have given us to be born and to live in such a time as this. Oh, how those who love you and lived long before us would have delighted to be here with us today to know the gospel, to know you, Jesus, as we do, to to have the full canon of scripture, complete, sufficient, and laid open before us to know what awaits us, oh God. It's coming. Oh, Father, we give praise and thanks to you for your love and your faithfulness for all that you've accomplished. Now help us to fix our hope. Help us to lock eyes with you and run this race with endurance and with joy that we might be holy as we hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.